Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to lift your son's name in worship. Lord, we just ask that as we open your word, Lord, that you would meet with us here. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you for forgiving us. God, just thank you for the fact that you are our Savior. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. It's the classic line, and it comes near the beginning of the, the film. Not even God could sink this ship. Remember it? It's in dispute who actually really said it. On the night of April the 14th, 19 and 12, the mighty unsinkable Titanic was surging through calm seas. We all know that it sank after it glanced off an iceberg. Its speed at the time was just over 20 knots, about 30 miles an hour. Records indicate earlier that same night, warning after warning had been sent to the Titanic that they were headed toward iceberg waters toward disaster, but the messages were ignored. In fact, when a nearby ship sent a very urgent message warning them that they were compromising their safety going into the ice field and at such speed, the radio operators on the Titanic were talking to the port at Cape Race about the time that the chauffeurs were to begin to line up for the arriving passengers to come off the dock and giving instructions about the menus being ordered by the wealthy on board for what they wanted to eat when they arrived. That means they were preoccupied with trivia. Titanic radio men responded to this final warning. Shut up. I'm talking to Cape Race and you are jamming my signals. Some things are just too important to ignore. What was it really that sank the Titanic? Was it an iceberg? Or was it pride? We come now to the prophet Obadiah. And I found this interesting little quote that fits the theme of Obadiah. Today's peacock is tomorrow's feather duster. I brought along a feather duster. Thought you might just need a little visual. Today's peacock is tomorrow's feather duster. You know who said it? Mark Zuckerberg. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But if he's smart, he's listening. Do you agree? Today's peacock. All spread out, all bold and brash and arrogant is tomorrow's feather duster. 
Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. We're studying, we're studying the minor prophets. There are 17 prophets that come at the end of the, of the Christian Bible. In the 39 Old Testament books, the 17 at the end, there are major prophets, major writing prophets, and those that are called minor prophets. Now, the Hebrews never called them that, okay? Our Jewish brethren didn't call them the minor prophets. That came around the time of Augustine in the 3rd century, labeled by the Christian church as minor prophets because their writings were shorter. Among the Hebrews, the Hebrews, uh, you know, the, they got their name from the Hebrews. They were called the Twelve because for the, in the Hebrew scrolls, they put all 12 of those shorter writing prophets it's onto one scroll. So they were just called the Twelve. That's interesting, isn't it? There's a group of guys in the New Testament called the Twelve. And trust me, they're minor players too. Because we know who the real focus is in the New Testament. So in the same way, we know little about these minor prophets in their actual lives. We really don't know a whole lot except for maybe a few of the 12 disciples who they really were. Do we? Because of where the focus really needs to be in Scripture. And that's where the focus is in the minor prophets. It's not on themselves. It's on what God says and what God does. Now... The cool thing about this really short book is that we're going to get to read the whole thing. It's only 21 verses. I mean, how often does a pastor get to read the entire book for his congregation? But we're going to do it this morning. Now, the name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. The servant, the bond servant, similar to what Paul would have said, the bond servant of God. There are 12 other, or there's a total of 12 men in the Old Testament that share this same moniker called Obadiah. And, and uh, so they're scattered throughout, which just means this was a very popular name back in the day, if you will. So we know very little about him. He remains a mystery to us, but we do know he was a very talented writer. He, was, he had a tremendous literary acumen. He, he was very skilled in imag- imagery. He was... Uh, um, at rhetorical questions. He could raise these wonderful questions and, and use irony very effectively. Parallelism, timely repetition, they're all part of these, this short 21 verses. Now, the date, when did he write? Okay, we need to establish two things. When did he write? Very shortly after 586 B.C., which was the, in 586 was when Jerusalem fell, the Babylonians came in and raised the city, literally destroyed it, knocked every stone down in the city of, uh, of Jerusalem, and, uh, and slaughtered really thousands of people, and then whoever was left and captured, able-bodied, was taken into captivity for the Babylonian exile. But shortly after, it was written shortly after 586. And so, so we talked last week about Habakkuk, who, who spoke very clearly about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And it was Obadiah who actually lived through it, survived it, went through it, saw the city destroyed, if you will. And then he writes shortly after this prophecy, this oracle from God directed toward whom? 
not toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in exile, not toward the Babylonians. He'll, God's going to deal with the Babylonians later. But this is written to the Edomites, to the people of Edom, if you will. So listen for that. They inhabited that territory just southeast of Jerusalem, bordering on Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and, um, and they were kinfolk, if you will. Okay, so let's read. Ready? We're going to read all of Obadiah. We have heard a message, an oracle from the Lord, that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size. Now, I'm using the New Living Translation because it's pretty, pretty good English for us. When somebody says, I'm going to cut you down to size, we know what that means, right? I'm cutting you down to size among the nations, and you will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress, and you make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully? But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came in at night and they robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies, but your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook, every cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land, and they, you, they will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and to destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you. You won't even know about it. At that time, not a single person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Timon will be terrified, and everyone in the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter because because of the violence. Now, here's the why. He's about to tell them why it's coming. Now, this is set up sort of like like a legal document. You know, this is popular with the prophets. It's, It's like that courtroom drama idea. You see, the sentence has been pronounced in the first nine verses. Here's the sentence. This is what you're going to go through. And here's why. Here's what you are guilty of. And so he summarizes that in in these first couple verses. In 10 and 11, he summarizes what they're guilty of. And then he makes eight clear statements in regard to their guilt, each of them preceded by you should have, you should have, you should have, eight times. So listen here. Here's, Here's why Edom is about to be destroyed because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever when they were attacked you stood aloof refusing to help them here's what you guys did when Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonians you didn't lift a finger You did nothing. This was not a sin of commission. 
at first it was the sin of omission. You know, we, you knew the right thing to do and you didn't do it. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and they cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated. Not only did they not lift a finger, they gloated. Well, we're better than them. Look what God's doing to them. Ever seen that? You gloated. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You ever notice how sometimes when we build up a little resentment or grudge and then something happens to somebody kind of bad that, you know, that we don't like, how much we enjoy it? It's a real sign of pride, isn't it? You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. Now, when people start boarding up their houses and evacuating in front of hurricanes, what's one of the number one concerns that they have? Looters. I, and I lived through the the terrible tornado in Wichita Falls. I was doing student ministry at Midwestern State, and I was there, you know, in the, in the aftermath of that when the National Guard came in literally with loaded guns and surrounded that southwest neighborhood of Wichita Falls for one and one reason only, because there were people who would take advantage of people who were in a very difficult and terrible situation would actually come and steal and loot their property. And that's what, that's what God is saying. Not only did you gloat and you rejoiced you didn't lift a finger but then in the aftermath you came in and went through the piles and you just anything of value you just took for yourselves you should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity you should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering with calamity you should not have stood at the crossroads here's the other thing they did you should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape you see the the Edomites created a pact with the Babylonians to protect themselves and so they were obligated then when the Judeans tried to flee the city they shot them down as they retreated and they in the next verse you should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their time of trouble they actually they actually captured the Edomites captured some of the Judeans some of the Jerusalem's people and and did what turned them over to the Babylonians so they'd be taken to captivity are you getting this picture the day is near Verse 15, here comes the judge speaking his promise. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. And it's not uncommon for Edom to be seen as sort of a type, a type of those who oppose the will and the way of God in the world. And so he says, when God pronounces his judgment, he includes 
Edom in with all who are like Edom. He says, the day is near when the Lord will judge all godless nations as you have done to Israel. So it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will, sw will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. The descendants of Joseph will be aflame, roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Yes, all of the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history, but Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place and the people of Israel will come back and reclaim their inheritance and the people of Israel will be a raging fire they will be on fire and Edom will be a field of dry stubble or hay the descendants of Joseph will be a flame that roars across the field devouring everything there will be no survivors in, in Edom I the Lord have spoken then my people living in Negev will occupy the mountain of, e of Edom those living in the foot foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and the people of Benjamin Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead the exiles of Egypt will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath the captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. And those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Those who are rescued and restored and brought back will go up to the mountain, the Mount of Zion in Jerusalem, to rule over the mountains of Edom. And the Lord himself will be their king. Their king. Now we've got limited time, so I will just, I'm going to focus us in on a key verse. Here's the key verse in Obadiah. It's verse 4. You have been deceived by your pride. And pride, God hates. Pride always goes before a fall. You have been deceived, Edom, by your pride. Now, who are the Edomites? We need to answer that question. And what does this say about their character as a nation? Okay? Who are the Edomites? Okay? Isaac, son of Abraham, married Rebekah. And late in life, she was barren for many years, she bore two sons. She had twins. And while she was pregnant, she was having a very, very difficult pregnancy. And she prayed and cried out to God. And the word she received from God was, Rebecca, there are two nations in your womb. They were already fighting. They were blood brothers, but there was bad blood between them from the start. They were two very different individuals. At birth, when they were born, the first to come out was Esau. Esau. Now, Esau was ruddy, almost masculine from the womb. The word Esau literally translates the idea. We like to say it means red, but, but in the original translation of Esau, it means complete. It's like this. This was a hairy child who kind of, he just, he just looked like he was rough and ready to go. 
right out of the room. So they called him complete. And while he's, when he's coming out of the womb, there's this other baby, the twin behind him, that's grabbed, got a hold of his heel and is pulling him back in the, room, the womb to try to get around him. And so they named the next baby Jacob, which means heel grabber, usurper, cheat. And so they were so labeled. Now, you don't hear the name Edom until Genesis chapter 25. And what happens in Genesis chapter 25, it says that Esau came in from the field and his, his brother, his twin brother Jacob, was cooking up a mess of red soup, lentil soup, red porridge. You with it? And Esau smelled it. And he just, boy, his just his taste buds just kind of lit up. I gotta have some of that. That smells great. And Jacob says, "You can't have any. This is my soup." And you remember the story? He just kept smelling that soup boiling on the stove. And finally, he said, "Look, I'll, I'll give you anything. I got it. I'm so hungry. I'm so famished." And Jacob says, "You give me your birthright, and you can have this soup." And Jacob stole his brother. He cheated his brother out of his brother's birthright as the firstborn. And from that day on, he was called Edom, which means red because the soup was red lentil soup. And so Esau and the Edomites, you'll see the names used interchangeably in the book of Obadiah and in other places. So the Edomites were the sons and the daughters. They were the, the, the ancestors of Esau. So, so they're kinfolk, if you will. All right? Are you with me? Now, here's the other thing that I think that's cool about Scripture. The word for pride in the Hebrew is the word zedok. Pride. It comes from the root word zed. And the word literally means to boil over. This idea of boiling of something that is boiling, that is stewing. And it's interesting that in the very story told in Genesis chapter 25, three times the word Zed, is, it appears, he's boiling the soup. And Esau comes in, he smells the soup boiling on the fire. Zed. And at the end he says, I will give you my birthright just so I can have some of that that boiling soup, that zed. Interesting that the word for pride becomes from that root, and the word zedok means pride. It means that which kind of bubbles up in us. You know, like in certain situations, it just sort of, it just sort of makes its way to the surface, right? It can kind of be just latent kind of back there, and, you know what I'm saying? And then something comes up, and we're, maybe we're challenged on something, you know? You, you ask my wife how defensive her husband can get. You know, Deb will challenge me, and boy, it just bubbles up. What do you mean? takes me about two or three hours before I finally admit that she's right and I'm wrong and I'm sorry. Because <laughs> there's a lot of pride in there. You know, and, it, and it's that kind of thing that boils up. In, you know, when the heat is on, it's, uh, it's where we easily go. And it's interesting that when, you, when, when 
Edom is described as a nation, a part of the national character is that which has been generationally handed down from Esau is this pride, this disregard for the things of God, you know, for the ways of God. The, his, he, he jettisons his birthright as if it's meaningless. And he lived a kind of worldly kind of way. And his people pick up the national character. You know, and so the key verse for Obadiah is to say, you have been deceived. Because pride is very deceptive, isn't it? You ever notice how easily it'll seep in? I read about the Sunday school teacher who was doing the lesson on, the, on these two men that go to pray in the, in the temple. One of them is a Pharisee, remember? And one of them is a publican. And the Sunday school teacher is just describing how this, this Pharisee gets up and he prays, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there, you know, that I keep the law and I'm righteous and, and I, you know, I, I, I give generously. And, I, you know, he's calling attention to everything, every good thing that he does. And finally, the publican just smotes his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, whose prayer got heard? You know, and so the Sunday school teacher for the third grade had just finished the story and says, now let's close in prayer. And he says, God, I'm sure glad I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> you see how pride can just sort of... Yeah, the enemy is so clever with us, people. This is, this is Dave's problem. You know, when I'm rocking along and I do something, you know, really good... You know, I mean, there, there are times, you know, when I'll, I get into an, a, a situation where I'm dumped into a situation. And on the way over there, man, I am praying. Oh, God, I don't know what I'm walking into here, but I'm just going to oh, i got to trust you. I'm gonna, you know, whatever. And I'll walk in there and I'll spend an hour, and a half, you know what I'm saying? And, and I'll, I'll feel like, boy, I connected with the problem and with what was going on, you know, whatever. And I'll walk out of that and I'll get in my car and I'll start to drive away. And, 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 and oh, Satan will go, pat yourself on the back, Dave. Good job, and in no time, I can start thinking I'm kind of indispensable or something. How wrong is that? Folks, God don't need me. You know, Balaam had a donkey and God used the donkey. Well, you've been deceived. You're living Edomites under this illusion of your own strength. Look at this city we've built up in the mountains. So well protected. And it was. The city of Petra is an amazing place when you look at the natural fortifications and how they built that city in the midst of these natural fortifications. You know, and they were, you know, they were they were so comfortable, so self-centered, and, and so proud of their wisdom. He mentions that in the book. And their prosperity. I mean, certainly they were under control, weren't they? I came across recently something that just hit me. Richard Rohr writes in a book called Adam's Return, Five Promises of Male Initiation. It's a little book. 
called Adam's Return, and he's talking about these very illusions that we have, these, these illusions that we have of just how much power and control we really have. And the way Rohr talks about it, he says, the only way that we enter in and we get to a place where we begin to mature spiritually is that we come to embrace these five essential truths. Are you ready for them? He said, you really want to grow spiritually, you've got to embrace these five essential truths. And, and, and these are the truths that we try to deny with our lifestyle, with our decisions, with our, you know, within our relation. These are, these are the things that we try to push away, that we try to live in some kind of illusion. He says, but he said, these, you, when you embrace these five truths, you are going to begin to grow spiritually into the, the kind of man or the kind of woman God wants you to be. But he's really, the book's really talking to men, but it really applies to everybody in this room. You ready? Here, here's the first one. Here's the first truth. Life is hard. Life is hard. You ready to embrace that one? Ready to quit whining? You know, about the circumstances in your life? Life is hard. Number two, you're not that important. You're not that important. Number three, see, here's the deal. When you get that one figured out that you're not that important, then that's when your story can become part of a bigger story. As long as you think it centers around you, you draw the circle. then it's just about you. But when you feel like, I'm really not that important, then, then you can get, your story can get interwoven with a much bigger story, God's story and what God's doing on this planet. And God is a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than you. But as long as you, you know, it, it's, you're really not that important. Number three, it's not about you. It's not about you. I love that. Rick Warren's book. Purpose-driven life. What's the first sentence? It's not about you. Who's it about? But I tell you, pride, pride will say to you, take that one back. It's really about me. It's my self-preservation. My self-respect. My stuff. It's not about you. Third, you are not in control. You are not in control. That's an illusion. You know how quickly that can be taken from you? Most of, you know, that, that's the sad thing about most of my spiritual growth. I'm going to be just really honest here. Uh, most of it's come kicking and screaming with the realization that I'm not in control. Because, you, you, because this old boy, if I can control it, I'll try to massage it, manipulate it, you know, try, you know, try to figure it out, analyze it, you know. <laughs> but the, if I can just move this over here, you know what? And then and it, it, spiritual growth finally comes when God says, you ready to take your hands off, Dave, because you're not in control. Okay. I surrender. That's why that's the first step in CR, isn't it, guys? Surrender. 
I am not in control. I want to think I am, but that's an illusion. You're not in control. And here's the fifth. Here's the fifth truth. You're going to die. It's true. You're going to die. Embrace that one yet? I'm just going to keep trying to have all the surgeries I can. (laughs) I may be dying, but I don't want to look like it. (laughs) Hello, West Plano. Life is hard. You're not that important. It's not about you. You're not in control. You're going to die. Guys, the world of that day, Edom was not a major player. They were a little bitty. They were kind of a little bit like Switzerland. Nobody really wanted to mess with them. You know, the, you know, the terrain was a little too treacherous, and, you know, and there just wasn't that much to capture. But you know, the dispute with Judah was really more about trade routes because Edom really wanted to, man, they really wanted to you know, make a killing out there. And they were, on the, they were on the trade route. You had to go through the mountains. So you'd go through those mountain passes through Edom. And so they formed all these alliances. And it's interestingly enough that it was those, the alliances that they formed with all the foreign traders that eventually led to the downfall because they were, they were tricked. They were tricked at one point. And there was, you know, there in, a, in a coup, there was an assassination of all of the city's leadership, of Petra's leadership, you know, and, and they were taken over by people they trusted exactly, exactly as Obadiah said. They weren't a major player. You know who the major player was? Who? Who was the most powerful nation on the earth in 586 B.C.? Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So I want to take you to Daniel chapter 4. I want you to hear what Nebuchadnezzar says about God in chapter 4. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll close this morning, okay? Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And he's the most powerful man in the world. And he is surveying all that he's made. Now, he's given a dream and warned in a dream a year earlier. And Daniel comes to interpret his dream and Daniel after interpreting his dream and it says that Daniel waited an hour to interpret his dream because you know when you're before a king that's kind of dangerous (laughs) so Daniel had to really become prayed up into the presence of the king after an hour and he goes okay now if the if the king would just would just hear me out on this the Lord is saying repent and do what's right Nebuchadnezzar and quit oppressing the poor and start taking care of the poor. And if you repent, he may, no guarantees here, he may decide to continue to give you prosperity. I love it, the fact is he just might 
decide to give you prosperity. You know, God's not obligated, but he might do that. That's a year before. So a year has passed. You ready? So at the end of 12 months, and Nebuchadnezzar has not repented, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this... Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now listen, in comparison to any of us, he had something to talk about, okay? The city of Babylon was encircled with a wall 38 feet high and over 80 feet thick encircling 225 square miles of city of 2 million people. They had chariot races on the top of that 38-foot wall. Four chariots at a time could race around those walls. Those are the walls he's standing on, and he's surveying Babylon, where he built gardens for his wife that were three, uh, you know, that were 300 feet tall and water was pumped from the Euphrates River that ran through the city up 300 feet to water these hanging gardens that decorated the city there. And Nebuchadnezzar's palace, the house that he lived in, let me see, what, what could we compare that to? Okay, so, so if you took the roof of Jerry Jones Stadium. I know some of you call that Cowboy Stadium. I call it Jonestown. <laughs> I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid, Jerry. Okay. If you took the roof of that stadium and you flattened it out, that could provide you for, with a blueprint for the, the foundation of Babylon's palace. Are you picturing that? The Anatole Hotel. I don't know what it's called now, but we always call it the Anatole. That's a big hotel, right? The entire square footage of the Anatole Hotel with all stories, all levels, and all rooms. 344,000 square feet. Nebuchadnezzar's palace, 630,000 square feet. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still coming out of the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. You know, God always, the voice always has to come down from heaven. Somewhere much higher. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> o King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, or seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the words fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. Basically, he went insane. 
in an instant. They have a word for it, some kind of a medical term where someone actually just thinks they turn into a, an animal. It's kind of where the werewolf stories all got started. Because literally the word, you know, the original word was, you know, kind of wolf man. But here he's describing like a cow. You're just going to eat grass like an ox. Okay, so he was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Didn't someone else really famous that flew a lot of airplanes, like some test pilot or something, have these really long fingernails? Like, what happened to that guy? Yeah. And at the end of the day, seven years later, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar sharing his own testimony with us here. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. And I praised him and I honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all of the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. You're not that important, okay? And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar prays and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Life is difficult. You want to grow spiritually? Embrace this. Life is difficult. And you're not that important. He wants you to be a part of his story, which is a much bigger story. And the problem is, you know, we build our little kingdom and we get our stuff and we get all the, everything that makes us feel secure, you know what I'm saying? And we will protect it, you know, and we're, and we're defensive and we get arrogant thinking we're really something when in reality, in comparison to who he is, we are nothing in comparison to him. We are not that important. And, you know, by the way, it's not about us. It's about him. And we are not in control. And the quicker we figure that out, the quicker we will get on our knees before him and submit and look up to heaven and say, God, you are in control. And I submit to you in all things. Because one day, one day, the day is coming that he describes at the end of Obadiah. There was a a day when Jerusalem was destroyed and the Edomites didn't show up. They did nothing. They just kind of sat there like we can just sit there and do nothing. Do nothing with the message. Just walk out. Or we can humble ourselves before God and we can embrace the truth. And one day, I'm going to stand before you, God, the judge of all nations and all people, the rightful King of kings, the rightful Lord of lords.
Matter of fact, God, I won't be standing. I'll be on my knees. I think I'll start now. I think I'll just start now. Let's pray. Our Father, I desperately want to be a part of a bigger story. Your story. The promise of restoration is always there because from the garden and from the fall of man you had a plan to send yourself to come in person through your son Jesus to complete all righteousness so that that righteousness could be imparted to those of us who humbly bow before you and acknowledge that it's all about you. So Father, would you enter into every heart that bows and humbles before you this day. Draw us in to your presence. Draw us into your bigger story. You who rule the nations, eternal God in every generation. Do not forsake us, O Lord, because we are proud, self-sufficient, and arrogant people. Do whatever it takes to humble us. that we might be part of your story. In your son's name we pray, amen.